Freedom HealthWorks is the direct primary care accelerator. We help doctors across the country start fresh in direct primary care. With Freedom HealthWorks, you work with a team, not a checklist. Visit FreedomHealthWorks.com and together we can achieve true freedom in direct care. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Healthcare Americana. I am your host, Christopher Habig, the CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks, accelerating direct primary across the United States. We've talked about the bottleneck that exists in physician training, going from medical school to residency. Now thousands of physicians each year are stranded in a professional purgatory of successful completion of medical school, but unable to land a residency spot in order to complete their training. If you know what I'm talking about, we have a lot of past episodes about this. I encourage you to, to check those out on Healthcare Americana. The largest culprit of this is federal funding for a fixed amount of residency positions being unchanged since the late 90s. Well, we have more qualified candidates than ever for that same number of positions. Now, this is a very exciting episode because we tend to try to illuminate a lot of issues in healthcare that leads up to a lot of frustration that patients and physicians both have. Today, we're actually going to talk about some potential solutions or ideas to make things better. That's always very, very exciting for me, too. So as we dive deeper in this subject about the physician shortages, you know, we try to find out, is it just a useful headline for scaring us? Or is there a real problem that we can identify and take action on without relying on the federal government to actually get something correct? With me today is Dr. Muhammad Khalif, an associate physician with the National Association of Assistant Physicians, as well as a president of the American Society of Physicians. Dr. Nadim Mian, a mental health counselor at the PCAX Clinic, Puget Sound Psychiatric Clinic, Welcome, gentlemen, and thanks for chatting with us today on Healthcare Americana. Thank you for having us, Chris. Thank you so much for having us. Now, we touched upon the subject of associate physicians before, but give us a quick synopsis of what that term actually means, Dr. Cleve. Yeah, sure. Um, well, you know, as we um, you know, discussed on this episode, you know, as you discussed with uh, Dr. Farina before, um, an associate physician is a physician, uh, and the, the term is often, you know, uh, confused with an assistant physician that is not a physician. Uh, so these are doctors, medical school graduates who have completed their board exams um, and have, uh, are, speak, speak English, um, are U.S. citizens or uh, permanent residents, uh, but haven't found that residency training yet to get board certified. Um, and this license was meant to, you know, have a bridge between uh, the residency period and when they graduate from medical school um, because positions are very few in this country and haven't increased for a long time. Now we see eye to eye on our, on our dislike for the term physician shortage. I think it really downplays the supply and demand of very talented individuals like yourself who choose to spend their lives caring for other people. And Dr. Mian, I'm including you in this one as well. You like to refer to it as a physician training shortage. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, because the physicians are there, right? Every year we have thousands and thousands of medical school graduates, uh, both, both U.S. citizens and non-U.S. citizens. Um, even, you know, data has been showing that uh, U.S. citizens have been even graduating more and not been, uh, you know, uh, able to attain this residency positions. Uh, so there is no shortage of, you know, um, physicians. Uh, this is a term that is, you know, uh, meant to uh, scare people, in my opinion, to bring in more, you know, mid-level providers. But the issue is a training shortage. And 
at the American Society of Physicians, we are trying to redirect this focus um, and ensure people can you know, understand it because it is hidden from the public and not a lot of people, uh, especially the general public, understand that there is a training shortage rather than a physician shortage. Yeah, Dr. Meehan, anything to add on as far as your views of the yeah. term physician shortage? Yeah, I'm, I'm completely agree with uh, Dr. Muhammad. It is uh, the, the unfortunately uh, for the last uh, since we have this artificial cap where uh, the funding is limited uh, for the programs to expand. Uh, it is definitely the, the the shortage are the opportunities to train new physician rather than um, competent or uh, the physician who can be trained as uh, as a, as a board certified clinician. Uh, it is uh, it is th- that um, uh, the funding gap actually uh, causing more of a concern uh, than actually uh, having a uh, qualified position around. Yeah, nobody wants to talk about that. You don't get politicians up there saying, uh, sorry, you don't have access to a physician because we're not going to pay for that physician to get trained. Rather, it's much easier to make doctors the scapegoats and say, oh, there's a shortage. Nobody wants to do this. Nobody wants to go into this career anymore to care for people. They're the bad guys over there, right? Yes. And, and a lot of, you know, the interesting thing is a lot of politicians, especially on the state level, uh, the local level, don't understand, you know, how the medical education system works. And, you know, during, during our advocacy efforts here in Washington State, we've been speaking with a lot of legislatures who thought you could immediately work after medical school um, and you could get your medical license after medical school. Uh, so there's a lot of, you know, like an educational gap on how the system works and with, with respect to politicians as well. So give us a little bit of color on how the medical system actually does work. So that's a nice, that's a nice little segue into, you know, helping educate people just to make sure we're on the same page for the next items in this, in this discussion in the episode. Yeah, sure. So the typical system in the United States is that if you want to become a doctor, you finish years of undergrad school, uh, and then you go into uh, four years of medical school, four years of rigorous medical school, both, you know, within, with doing clinical uh, work in medical school and uh, theoretical work uh, where you're learning the textbooks and everything about medicine. Um, and based on the studies published by the Texas Academy of Family Physicians, uh, you're already at 6,000 hours uh, once you graduate uh, medical school. And then you do three years of residency training. So that's an extra 15,000 hours uh, where you're practicing under the supervision of a physician. And then you get board certified. So a lot of rigorous training in uh, accountability in medical education, which is way different than, uh, you know, how nurse practitioners and physician assistants uh, work. In physician assistants, uh, I think you need only 2,000 hours to uh, practice medicine. Uh, nurse practitioners only need 500 to 1,000 hours to practice independently in 23 states. Uh, and that's how the typical system works. Uh, so the, within the associate physicians, what we're doing is uh, we're trying to, after these medical graduates finish 6,000 hours of uh, training, uh, they could work under a physician and maybe in a DPC practice or another setting uh, to help these physicians uh, carry on these extra load and, you know, uh, help them serve the patients that are in need. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the uh, nurse practitioners and physician assistants as well. So I just want to, you know, go through kind of what you laid out there. So you go to medical school, you get 6,000 hours of classroom and experience. 
Um, yes. And then you try to apply for residency. And, and like I mentioned in the beginning, the, uh, the associate physician, a lot of them are caught in this purgatory, meaning they can't get matched. And I believe that there was close to 5,000 or 6,000 physicians a year who are unable to be matched due to funding constraints because residency programs are government funded. Again, set in levels that were set back in the late 90s. So the government pays hospitals to train medical school graduates, and we call them residents. Yes. Uh, so that is essentially uh, the government gives hospitals, um, you know, free labor, uh, which is, you know, and they're called residents and they work 80 hours a week. And the residents and another thing about uh, uh, the residents can't change their employer. Right. Once, you know, they go in through this um, lottery system called a match. Uh, and once they're there, they're there. Uh, the only way that they can, you know, uh, change their employer if, if they go back to the competition pool. So that's why a lot of residents don't change their employer. Hospitals have a lot of le leverage when it comes to residence hours. And um, so there's not a lot of room over there. And also another issue is, you know, the billing part of it, right? Um, it's just not sustainable. Residents can't bill for the work. CMS has really strict guidelines that we can talk about. And, you know, the private sector, private insurance, uh, not a lot of them are recognizing residents' work. And there's a lot of system, you know, system crush. A lot of the system is crushing these residents. And then the, on the counterpart, you have these nurse practitioner residency programs that are opening up and paying nurse practitioners uh, $100,000 to $200,000 a year because they can bill for their work while residents get paid an average of $11 to $12 an hour. So it, it is a very sad situation that I think we need to advocate for and we need to change. Yeah, it sounds like there's a heck of an arbitrage opportunity that hospitals are participating in by having very experienced individuals who, you know, young physicians, um, but they're able to bill at full freight because what, you know, they'll, they'll usually bill under a chief resident name or another physician who's been there, even though the resident's earning, I think you just said 80 hours a week, you know, earning $40,000. I mean, that's the closest thing to minimum wage we could probably get or even, even under that. So there's a ton of cost savings for hospitals to be able to deploy their residency programs in order to care for patients. And it's just all upside is what it sounds like. Yes, yes. And, you know, that's what we believe. And it, the problem is it hasn't been adequately studied uh, because there's been a lot of pushback, uh, you know, on, you know, the indirect savings, the cost savings of hospitals when they have these residents, right? Um, so they don't need to employ other physician assistants or nurse practitioners because they have these residents that they get paid for uh, by the federal government to have. And their kind of counter message is that residents cost us too much. You know, um, we, you know, spend a lot of, you know, training uh, into them. We put a lot of FTE hours into them uh, and, you know, they cost too much. And we'll never know unless it's adequately studied. And these, these studies are having pushback all the time. Now, do you think that there is some credence to that? Do you think that hospitals are looking at them saying our staff physicians are spending a lot of time training these new residents? What are your opinions as far as that argument goes? My opinion is that, yes, that is, you know, they might be right on the first year of residency or maybe a couple of months into residency, but I don't believe that's the case of a second year resident or a third year resident or a fourth year resident and on because these doctors get experience you know, on the go. These are, you know, doctors who have been working for a long time, have these clinical hours. There might be some extra FTE hours in the beginning. Um, but, you know, after that, it's morning reports, right? Uh, and there's physician supervision. 
Uh, and it also depends on the physician level as well, right? Different physicians know their residents and they know what kind of works, they, works, work they can take on. And I just can't, can't believe that, you know, physician assistants don't need these, you know, ri- rigorous, uh, you, know, uh, you know, training and residents, uh, you know, need these, you know, like constant, constant FTE hours. Um, right. So I think residents, yes, you know, residency is a supervision environment uh, and they should be supervised. But at the same time, I think that's not as ex- the extent that hospitals are saying. Yeah, yeah. And Dr. Mian, I know you have a, an extensive experience working with residents and designing residency programs. It, it just seems to me like there's a disconnect between that messaging that residents cost us too much when they're earning, I think you said, $8 an hour yeah. for the work that they're doing. Yet they're able to, and that resident is coming out of medical school with, again, 6,000 hours of classroom instruction and experience. You put that against what you said, a, uh, a nurse practitioner, somewhere between 500 and 1,000 hours, and a PA at about 2,000 hours. And those people are making exponentially more than what a resident physician is. So it just seems like there's a disconnect between citing cost of a resident and then employing NPs and PAs. Am I reading that correctly? Yes. So um, most of the hospitals, they, they, uh, well, they, they claim it, it, is, it just goes under that thing, uh, that we uh, have to be more cautious. We have to pay more monies for, to hire the supervisor, supervising physician, to supervise those uh, resident physicians while they're going through the training. But the thing is, during in every uh, residency program, there is a hierarchy procedure, hierarchy is placed in where second year resident and third year resident is started to provide those uh, uh, supervisory roles in, um, in, uh, along with the faculty. So it is that it is uh, one of their role is, one of their requirement is that uh, uh, they have to supervise uh, the, the new coming resident for the first year or few, few months, as uh, Dr. Muhammad mentioned. Uh, so it, it, it is not all the faculty that they, they usually it is portrayed that for one resident, they have to hire one uh, supervisor position. It is not the case. It is the team, the whole team actually work for it. And those supervising uh, residents, they are also being paid as a, a resident physician like a third year or senior resident is being paid as a, uh, so, uh, as a resident physician. So uh, it is kind of a misnomer. I think it is kind of uh, just uh, uh, doesn't make uh, much sense that they have to spend lots of money for a resident physician to be trained. Hmm. It is more of a political agenda or something on those lines. I'll tell you in my, in my experience that we had this uh, residency program that was not funded and we survived Mm. without any external help for four years. It is a practical proof that a residency can be operated. It can survive without any fundings from the government. Uh, Because when we talk about the funding from the government, then it, it comes with all the rules and regulations and it comes with all the limitations. Uh, that uh, goes with the with the with the, the, the cap they have uh, has imposed on the new residency program. 
Yeah, that's a that's a fascinating point. And, and I know, Dr. Khalif, you're going to have more to, to add upon that. We're going to pause real quick to hear, a, uh, hear some messages from our awesome sponsors here of Healthcare Americana. We'll be back right after this. Health insurance premiums are rising faster than actual medical costs. And employers everywhere are struggling to keep their heads above water and take care of their amazing team. Most people will never meet their deductible in a given year. So shouldn't there be an alternative to health insurance for people who don't really need it? At Custom Benefit Solutions, we build better benefit solutions by pairing local, direct primary care options with affordable medical cost sharing plans. This creates affordable options for America's small businesses. These companies are able to save money and provide an actual primary care doctor that'll take care of your employees and their families. Employees enjoy getting the care they deserve without struggling with confusing co-pays or deductibles. Want to learn more? Go to custombenefits.org and talk to a team member today. Custom Benefits Solutions. We solve for care. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. There comes a time when the man of the house must take charge. Family planning is a tough conversation for many. And at Happy Dad Vasectomy, we understand that decision isn't easy. When your family is complete, our no-needle, no-scalpel, no-stitches procedure will give you peace of mind about your family's future. Happy Dad Vasectomy conveniently books appointments within two weeks of calling and has locations in central and northern Indiana. Visit happydadvasectomy.com to learn more. Happy Dad Vasectomy, the easiest part of family planning. Welcome back to Healthcare Americana. We're talking to Dr. Khalif and Dr. Mian, exploring the bottlenecks of residency programs. And this is the fun time where we get to talk about solutions. So gentlemen, I know you both have some awesome ideas on how to alleviate these bottlenecks and how we could really help these doctors and really help all citizens of this country uh, have access to really great physicians. So Dr. Khalif, Talking about the residency issue where, um, you know, like Dr. Demian just said right before the break that a, a second, third year, and fourth year resident is not the same as a first year resident and on upward. So it seems like there's a sliding scale of capabilities, yet we're trying to apply a one size fits all compensation structure to them. What are some of your ideas on some, some real world action items that we can all advocate for and hopefully some systems implement to help out their residency programs? Yeah, I mean, one of the best um, solutions, and I think Dr. Mian will touch on it, is let the private market run, right? Um, Let's stop having restrictions on the private market. Uh, Let independent independent physicians, DPCs, be able to create their own, um, you know, residency program without government restrictions and let them thrive. And I think if these independent physicians, if these, you know, groups thrive, then residencies thrive and we get more residency programs. And another short-term solution is not a one-size-fits-all for residents, right? Uh, We have a third-year residence that's about to graduate next year and practice independently. And it's way different. That third-year residence is different from the first-year resident. 
And we have to, you know, change some of these billing uh, criteria, uh, both from the private market, uh, private insurance, and the government insurance, to ensure that these residents can bill adequately. Because currently, CMS and the guidelines for CMS is when you're when residents are billing, the in the, the, the supervising physician has to uh, say that they watched them from first start to second start. Uh, they did everything. They repeated the physical exam, and those guidelines kind of restrict uh, residents from billing under their own name and also being able to be compensated uh, for their work. So uh, these are two really important situations that we can advocate for. And we have to stop, you know, shutting down independent residency programs. And I've been speaking with a lot of physicians in, you know, Florida that said that they had independent residency programs that were shut down. Um, And Dr. Mian can talk about his residency program that's been shut down. And if we continue to, you know, uh, restrict the private market, uh, we restrict access to patient care, which is um, which is n- doesn't mean that access to pri- access to patient care always comes from government funding. The private market, we the people, can work if we're given that chance. Yeah, and, and I love the messaging. And Dr. Mia, we'll we'll, um, we'll hear from you in a, in a in a quick minute on what your experiences were with that. But Dr. Khalif, you mentioned something about letting residents bill under their own names. Dive a little bit more into that because um, that's an interesting interesting potential solution that I want to dig into a little bit more. Sure. So the, the issue currently, the problem is that CMS, um, Centers for Medicare, Medicare Services, gives access to hospitals. So you have to treat a number of Medicare patients, right? Uh, because the funding comes from Medicare. And that's the majority of patients you see in a residency program. Uh, and it has to be the majority of, because of the reg- regulations. And CMS has, uh, you know, a criteria for how you can bill those uh, patients. Uh, residents can't, you know, bill in their own name if they're a first, first resident or, a, you know, third resident. The practicing physician has to talk about, you know, if they redid the examination, did all those kind of key parts to ensure adequate supervision. Where the nurse practitioners who are caring for these Medicare patients, really old complex patients, don't have to go through those kind of uh, regulations. And physician assistants don't have to go through those regulations. So residents being able to bill like a nurse practitioner, like a physician assistant, and having that parity during training, uh, I think that can increase the residency program. And that can, you know, give incentives to residency programs to open, right? You know, if a business can't run, if there's no, uh, you know, cash flow, if it's not sustainable, then there's no incentives for the private market to open their residency programs. And this is not only from the government sector, but the private sector as well. Uh, You know, these big insurance companies, we have to, you know, advocate that they include, you know, reasonable billing criteria for residents uh, so they can get reimbursed for their services as well. Sure, sure. So, you know, my question comes is what, kind of problems would allowing residents to bill themselves, what kind of a problems or costs would that alleviate uh, in typical residency programs? Uh, a lot of costs. First of all, the faculties that is supervising them, right? Currently, they're getting paid by the hospital through Medicare, do- Medicare dollars. And if you had faculty that were, you know, faculty get, could get paid more, and you would have a lot of incentives for really, you know, high quality physicians in medical educations to train more, right? A lot of physicians are, you know, going under a community practice or private practice and not opening these residency programs because there's no huge incentives. And I think physicians in DPC, even 
could eventually benefit from opening residency program because they could have the help and they could have the incentives to grow. Uh, and these physicians could stay longer in that DPC and they could grow as partners. And I think it would give a lot of power over from the hospitals to physicians if this was possible. Because I would work at a physician you know, group if I were a resident because I feel that I could be mentored more. Maybe my work hours would, would improve. I would not need to work 80 hours a week. And maybe I could have more options because, you know, once these incentives start to build up, a lot of residency programs could open up that are, you know, competing. Because right now, once resident candidates go into this match, there's no competition. The, the salary rate is fixed regardless where you graduated from or how many experience you have. It doesn't matter. Uh, the compensation is fixed. Uh, gotcha. And I think they, they could be more competition. Gotcha. So, yeah, this basically lets um, residency programs expand beyond the constraints of very large hospital systems. Yes, exactly. And I think that is that would that would empower a lot of physicians, in my opinion. Understood, understood. So Dr. Mian, we we hinted at it. So you've had experience trying to set up your own independent kind of a private practice residency in the past. It didn't go so well. Yeah, so there was a kind of a, a trial and it was it has proven a success uh, on, on on the on the point as far as uh, the education and the training was provided in that independent program. Um, uh, just to give you, uh, just to give you just an example, uh, it was a, a psychiatry residency program, and uh, there is in-training exams happen nationwide. Uh, it calls uh, Trite exam that is conducted by um, the psychiatric uh, association every year, and. Uh, consecutively four years, three years out of four, because fourth year we were not able to sit in for that exam because the programs were shut down. Three years we were uh, at the top 10 uh, institutions uh, nationwide. So it, it, it gives you an idea that the academic um, excellence or, and the training was, being, was, uh, was uh, provided over there. The idea of having, uh, there are two things, Private and independent. Uh, private is that they do not require any funding from the government. Uh, it can be done. It can be, as, as Dr. Mohammed mentioned, maybe uh, we just need to find the ways to uh, put a, uh, a structure to it and uh, see that if we can, if the resident, they can build themselves. And then that would be something it will basically, as far as the uh, the the financial uh, providing that that will pretty much hold up the program by itself, and this is what we have done too. Even though the residents were not billing, but uh, still, uh, it was it's kind of a doable. The other thing is independent. The independent is that most of the programs in right now uh, we're having in, in nationwide or um, under the umbrella of big institutions. Maybe a structure can be go around where a, a not one but maybe five or ten uh, institution nationwide can make a uh, umbrella where those independent uh, residency programs can flourish. It will be more because sometimes they would like to see um, they kind of want to see oversee the process and um, the procedures and the and, and the and the training and, uh, being provided. Uh, that is the main goal of uh, that um, institution affiliation. 
Mm-hmm. So maybe on those lines, you know, that can be, it can be happen. Maybe there are two things happen when we talk about a residency program. There is a one institution and then that institution has many residency programs. Uh, for an example, family medicine, internal medicine, psychiatry, and they can have those residency programs. So maybe for independent psychiatry uh, residency programs, it could be that you know, nationwide we can develop a umbrella institution which where many other top-notch institutions can participate in and provide that institutional regulation for those sure. programs. That, that, will, that will satisfy the, 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 the current, the, the way it is, is being done right now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I can definitely see that. So you, you mentioned something you said in the fourth year, it was shut down. What did you mean by that? So, you know, I want to hear your personal experiences with what you're trying to do, what successes you had, and then ultimately what led to it being shut down. So uh, the program was, uh, it had, as I mentioned, there are two parts uh, to it. When we talk about ACGME, the Credit Council of Graduate Medical Education Regulatory, uh, the fun part in that is uh, that the residency program should be under a, a institution. And uh, when we apply for the institution accreditation by ACGME, it was granted. Uh, first, it was granted for uh, two years, and then afterwards, it was uh, it was continuous, which is ten years or so on. And uh, the second level happens after that institutional uh, uh, accreditation. The second thing happens that the, the residency program per se, or the resident program itself, have to be recognized by ACGME. Mm-hmm. Um, accreditation process is, is a accreditation. Yes, yes, right. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yes. Accreditation should be happened from them. So we had uh, applied, and it had been gone through. That the, the answer was not given so uh, so quickly that the, the residency program started excelling, start moving on, and was uh, going in the in the right direction, but. Uh, the accreditation was denied when it was in its fourth year. Of, okay. uh, so it took you three years to hear back from these agencies and these associations that handle all these loopholes and embed with the government funding. It took them three years to get an answer back to you on whether this was a viable program or not after you had already started training doctors? Yeah. yeah. So it, it was every time, because the thing is... Uh, the application process happens uh, uh, once a year and uh, they can have an, a supplemental uh, meeting uh, maybe a, a more than, you know, maybe uh, more than once in a year and it doesn't happen so often. So uh, every time if there was a concern, so it will kind of uh, go back to the program and that issue needs to be resolved and addressed and then go back to the committee. So it, it takes a long time just to have that process go through the cycle. Right. So this is how it took for a long time. And then the three years passed by. Uh, and final decision was that there are so many things you have to improve. And at that point, three years, the faculty was out of funds and um, out of, uh, they, they have also been exhausted emotionally and financially. 
So that's why at that point, everyone realized it, that it may not work out for us. Yeah, and that's, that's why it just shut down and uh, the, the institution accreditation was also taken away. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's just heartbreaking. You know, Dr. Khalid, why not start with some place like that like at the accreditation process rather than at trying to change the way that residency programs inherently work? Why not try to change the ability for more residency programs to populate? Like you mentioned, why not have a direct primary care residency program that's able to be accessible and accredited or whatever the certifications need Yeah, make that yeah. easier. Yeah, I think that is a really good um, place to start as well. Uh, but the issue is time after time, we have been, you know, advocating for this, um, you know, in many different levels um, and trying to reach out to these accreditation bodies, right? Folks like the ACGME, uh, which is the you know, biggest uh, residency accreditation body, but, you know, we can't do it alone, right? Um, that's why I think it's important for all of us, you know, as a community to tackle this together. Once we have, especially my goal is to get the DPC community uh, involved in this issue so we can all have a think tank around this and, you know, tackle this issue together because the more of us, the better. And we can improve patient lives. We can stop the scope creep that's going on, right? With, you know, non uh, you know, physicians, and we can have more physicians caring for patients if we, you know, change uh, these accreditation regulations. And as Nadim said, that they want you to be, once they kind of give you a preliminary accreditation, they want you to be, get like a permission from an institution like a university, right? And that is just not going to work out. And we got to tackle this together. Yeah, it's a process that's arduous. And it sounds like they don't want to get better. There's no continuous improvement policies uh, or procedures in place. And to me, it is the definition of a hamster wheel. It really is. You know, we, we restrict the number of spaces here. We restrict um, the ability of incredible leaders such as Dr. Mann to get out there and, and start up their own residency programs to help alleviate this problem. And then they only want to do business with hospital systems and hospital systems then shove doctors into restrictive covenants and restrict their ability to be... <laughs> free-thinking physicians. Um, I just, you know, I, yeah. I am always very solution-oriented. I'm like, you know, I think, I think the free market uh, of medical care and really direct care can help in that. But like you said, a lot of times you're going into a boxing ring with one hand tied behind your back trying to fix a lot of these problems. Exactly, exactly. And that's why during your episode uh, with Dr. Khan, uh, you were talking about, you asked her a question about how can the, you know, private market can intervene and I was just, you know, shaking my head because, and then I, you know, I got this spark and I was like, I got to bring Dr. Mian to this show because, uh, you know, the issue is, you know, with that. And there's just so many loopholes for entrepreneurs in this field, right? Uh, and imagine if you kind of, uh, you know, shut the door on every entrepreneur physician who wants to increase that, you know, backlog of physicians, that wants to reduce that backlog of physicians, there's 10,000 physicians every year who don't match, right? And I think, you know, giving those physicians a chance to uh, expand these residency programs and the investment that goes in, it's not easy. That's why, you know, these physicians really want to make a difference. Dr. Mian's group, I think so, invested north of a million dollars. And it's a lot of money to, you know, implement these kind of things. And I think it's just a shame to see uh, these entrepreneurs going through this hamstering, as you said. 
Yeah. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And, and Dr. Mann, to go back to what you said, you had top 10 results. I mean, it was working yet just because you didn't have the right forms or someone didn't like what you guys were doing, or you didn't jump through the right loopholes, they decided to shut you down. So it's, it's an absolute shame. Absolute shame. Well, Dr. Khalif, Dr. Mian, thanks again for joining us on Healthcare Americana. I love these episodes where we're able to present solutions so that people have an action plan and can get out there and try to change some stuff up there. To learn more about direct primary care, listeners can visit freedomhealthworks.com and to listen to all our past episodes and even check out our awesome online shop, visit healthcareamericana.com, pick up the latest swag in the DPC community. Thanks for listening, everybody. And thanks for helping us make a positive change in healthcare. Healthcare can be complex. If you're managing a chronic or life-threatening illness, Patients Rising is here for you. We built the Patients Rising Concierge to help you navigate stressful health decisions and get the support you deserve. You will find personalized support by calling, emailing, or visiting our website. Our team is standing by to help with your unique situation. Find the help you need today at patientsrisingconcierge.org. New Era Health Plans brings a unique solution to health insurance. We offer private insurance that allows you the freedom of choice of any doctor, any hospital, anywhere. New Era offers modern, flexible health insurance, life and supplemental, Medicare and education resources. We are a national agency licensed in most states. New Era emphasizes educating our clients and helping people make smarter decisions that deliver value and peace of mind. Our plans allow our customers to save 25 to 50% each month while providing transparent health benefits at a price that actually makes sense. New Era Health Plans is committed to providing the best service to self-employed business people, individuals, and families. We are an endorsed vendor of the Free Market Medical Association and believe in the power of free market medicine. For more information, visit NewEraHealthPlans.com. New Era Health Plans, modern, flexible health insurance plans. New Era Health Plans, Inc. is an independent field marketing organization representing Philadelphia American Life Insurance Company. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.